You love the Lord today? Amen. Amen. Praise God. This morning, I, uh, uh, I thought I'd preach on uh, the Ten Commandments. No, not really. <laughs> Mix it up a little bit, you know. Uh, anyway, I'm one who likes to take advantage of every... Uh, every day that, that uh, we observe something because I think it's like what Jesus did. He took advantage of scenes that were round about him, a mountain or a fig tree or whatever. He used them as illustrations. And so what a great day. This is the best day. I, I love this day. I was at Jerry's the other night eating and uh, somebody came up to me and said, are you ready? I said, you know I'm ready. And he goes, oh man, this is the day. I said, man, every day is the day. But this is the day, amen? This is a great day. This is a great day. Hell hates this day. Amen. The devil hates this day. Every demon in hell, every demon that walks upon the earth and seeking a place to be hates what took place as what is represented on this day. And that makes me love it even more. How about you? Amen. Let's be interactive today. You can, you can be alive and awake and clap your hands. Maybe clapping your hands or giving out a shout will keep you awake. How's that? Or at least your neighbor. So this morning, uh, I want to take you back to a place where we'd already been a couple of, three weeks ago. I wanted to build something that I felt we could start and kind of take the path. And uh, I mean, the, the thing is, sometimes you know the end of a movie and sometimes movies start at the end, and then they go back and tell the story. And that's kind of what uh, days like this and Christmas are. You already know the end, but let's build it up to where it goes to. All right? And there's so much there. I, I remember one time, uh, one time I, for whatever reason, I had, oh, I know what it was. D Teresa managed to get sick. No, I don't mean it. <laughs> it was on Super Bowl Sunday. Well, I had to be at church. I was a youth pastor. I had to be there, and she stayed at home on the couch, sniffling and so forth, but she watched the Super Bowl. I walked in the door. She told me who won. I said, why did you do that? She goes, well, I figured you want to know. I said, yeah, I wanted to know three hours from now. I was recording it. <laughs> I was going to watch it. So... Anyway, sometimes I feel like it's that way. We know what happens in the end, but the path to get there is what makes it so great. And so this, a few weeks ago, we started talking about the road to Jerusalem. How many of you were here for all these? I, I'm glad that you uh, were able to be there. Can we put that up there this morning? The road to Jerusalem. That's what I kinda, kind of titled this thing, the journey on the road to Jerusalem. And we covered various spots along the way. And things got very intense within the last month, and especially within the last week of getting there. And so this morning, I, I still want to bear with that today. And, and so I want to look at, the, at Easter, or the resurrection, uh, at the Holy Week from a different perspective this morning. Because I'd like to just make you aware of some things that will make you rejoice even more. Sometimes we know how things are, but if we know the reality of it all, the, my goodness, it's mind-boggling. It's just too good to not believe, you know. So that's what we want to look at today. So this morning, I want to look at this scripture. It says in Luke, the ninth chapter, 
now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And you remember uh, that was what his thing was. He wanted to get there. He had to get there. Nothing was going to stop him. Mark, the 10th chapter, says, now, that when, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed as they followed, and they were afraid. Then he took the 12 aside and began to tell, him the, tell them the things that was going to happen to him. Now, this is while they're journeying to Jerusalem, which he has set his face toward. But then he begins to say, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man. Now, sometimes in the scripture it refers to Jesus as the Son of God, and sometimes to the Son of Man. And you wonder, well, why, which one is it? It is both. And so he, is, he was the Son of God, but he was the Son of Man. He was all God, he was all man. He was a duality in his, his being. And so he was talking about the Son of God, meaning what his, the human side had to take place when he got to Jerusalem. This wasn't God going through this. This was someone just like you and like me. As Hebrews said, a high priest that can be touched with our, the feelings of our infirmities because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sins. Amen? So the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests, and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And then they're going to mock him and scourge him, spit upon him, and kill him. And the third day, he's going to rise up. Another gospel in Matthew, when he told this, Peter looked at him and he said, far be it from you, Lord, that's not going to happen. Not on my watch. And Jesus had to rebuke him, and he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know the things. You don't know what you're saying. They couldn't understand that. He had not revealed it. But this is the third time that he's letting them know, look, this is, this, this is what's up ahead. This is what's going down. We're going in there. I'm going to be betrayed. The chief priest, the scribes, they're all going to turn me over to the Romans, and then they're going to crucify me. They'll kill me, but it's okay. It's all good, because I'm going to rise again. Amen? Amen? Come on, put your hands together. Give him praise. So with that in mind, we want to look at uh, Jerusalem. I talked to you about the place, the passion, and the purpose of Jerusalem. The story of this city is, is very interesting. I've had the privilege of being there on those grounds, love, love to take a trip back. And uh, I know a couple of years ago when I was unable to hardly get in and, you know, make it to church, but I thought, well, I guess I'll never go to the Jerusalem again. I'll have to wait for the new Jerusalem. But uh, the Lord has blessed me. I'm making my way back. One of these days I'm going to go to Jerusalem again. Amen. 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 And maybe take you with me, all right? But I uh, had an appointment with my surgeon, my two-year appointment the other day, and he still stands amazed at what God has done, knowing the condition that I was in. But thank you for your prayers, and thank God for answers to prayers. Amen. But Jerusalem, 
It's not just any city. Uh, there's no city in the world that can compare to that. I know it's hard for you to understand that, and that's why I want to bring this to you. But all the, the lights and all the things that we have in New York or L.A. or Vegas or even the beauty of the, the uh, Gulf or anywhere else, nothing, Paris, doesn't make any difference. There's nothing that can compare to Jerusalem. I shared with you a few weeks ago how Abraham Lincoln had made the statement to his wife. Uh, in fact, it was the last words that he had spoken to her prior to being assassinated, but he said, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to the holy city. And uh, anyway, then after he was shot and did not make that trip, but uh, I believe that if he believed in Jesus Christ, he's gonna, we're going to see him in the new Jerusalem. Amen. 764 times, at least, it's mentioned in the Bible. The, word, the name Jerusalem is mentioned. More than 800 references to that city that we're talking about today. But yet the city is in such a political, in the middle, almost in the middle of every political conflict, as well as a spiritual conflict. But yet it's still a city that is most important, I believe, in all the scriptures. Psalm 48, 1 and 2, uh, the psalmist described it as the city of our God. It says how beautiful is, is the city of our God and on the mountain of his holiness, the, the beauty of, of that. It's the city of the great king. That's what makes it so special. It's a city of God. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, the Bible tells us that God has chosen Zion, or Jerusalem, as his dwelling place. How many of you know wherever God dwells, that's a good place? Amen. I'd rather be in any place. I'd rather be in the desert if that's where God dwelt at as to be in the finest of things here on this earth. Amen. Wherever God is. That's why Moses says, wherever you're going, that's where we want to go. If you're not going, we don't care to go there. We're comfortable being in your presence. Ezekiel, the fifth chapter, verse 5 makes an interesting statement talking about Jerusalem. And it says that, that it was the center of all civilization. It's the center of the nations. That's what makes it so important. That's why it has such conflict in the physical realm as well as in the spiritual realm. There's a great deal of conflict there. But it's believed uh, by the rabbis and their old teaching, and I love to, to read about this, but many of the rabbis believed that it was upon that mount of Jerusalem that God created everything around about him. And we'll kind of look at that today and say, is that possible? And that's what we want to look at this morning. It is God's city, God's clock, and God's canvas. We see that it's a place where God has chosen to be, his dwelling place. Everything seems to be revolving around that. It's God's clock because of all the things that take place. If you look to Jerusalem or Israel, the things that happen there, it's, it, it's like hands moving on the clock of eternity, taking us to that place. And I believe we're getting close to the midnight hour. Amen? And it's also God's canvas. When I say canvas, I mean it's what he painted a picture. If you could, in ancient times, they used to draw pictures that kind of told stories. 
Uh, who was it that said the picture is worth a thousand words? You look at a picture. Well, God used oftentimes the picture of what took place to reveal a message. And we see that Jerusalem has been a message board. It's been the, the canvas upon which God has displayed all the things that he wants to tell us about. And this, today we're going to look at a couple of pictures. Is that okay? It's the place where Jesus came to and was presented unto the Lord, to God, amen, by his parents, his earthly parents. It's also the place upon which he was crucified, but yet it's going to be the place, the Bible tells us, that he's going to set foot upon the Mount of Olives, which is just uh, on the other side of the Hebron Valley. He's going to set foot on one side and on the other, and it's going to split right through Jerusalem, right through the Temple Mount, through the Eastern Gate. So we see that Jerusalem is a definitely a pinpoint uh, city or location for the future of what's going to take place for everyone. It's been filled with, uh, uh, it's a place where he's going to rule and reign. It's been filled and known as, as conflict, curse, the crowd, the cross, and the crown. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Before Jerusalem was a city, by name, it was just known as a place. Now, you know, cities are often named after uh, someone or something. For instance, uh, Granite City became known as Granite City. The Niedringhouse brothers founded this. They came over from St. Louis and established some works over here, the Granite Works, uh, which we have granite ware, and it became known as Granite City. Collinsville was founded by, I forgot his first name, but a Collins. Edwardsville, the same thing. So cities that are known by that, uh, oftentimes it's a location that exists and there's nothing there, and then a name is given to it because of what it represents or who found it, who discovered it, or something of that nature. So Jerusalem, like everywhere else, was just a place. It was considered to be a, just a place. It did not have a name. But we, I want to look at it today. In order to go there, we're going to have to look all the way back in the scriptures and find out how Jerusalem played a part in the very beginning, the first chapter of Genesis, all the way into Revelation, the 22nd chapter. I think I should have you out by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Hopefully not. Oh, you want me to go longer? <laughs> Thank you, Sean. We'll get you out of here. Amen. We're going to go at jet speed this morning. So, as I said in the beginning, the Bible says that in the beginning, God. So God was before everything, obviously. We understand that. And at that point where he began to create things. Day one was a day of God's work, and he separated light from darkness. Light had power over darkness. Anytime darkness is there, all you have to do is bring a little light and it dispels the darkness. Isn't that interesting? If you have, uh, if I look at that door out there that has windows in it, light comes in from that window. But I look over at this door that doesn't have light there, darkness is not escaping, but light is going in there, right? Darkness can't overcome light. And so that's the way it was in the very beginning. Even the Bible tells us that God made his days by the evening and the morning. 
They started at sundown. That was the beginning of the first day. So there's darkness, but then the sun comes up, and it dispels all the darkness and light. We have day, amen? We see on day number two, he created the sky. On day three, he created the dry land, caused it to come up out of the waters, and then also created the plants and the trees and within the trees and everything, there was a seed which, by which could uh, sustain and continue on. On the fourth day, he hung the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky. The fifth day, he created the creatures or the, the beings that dwell in the air as well as those on, in the water. On the sixth day, he created animals, creatures of the, the earth, and humans on the sixth day. So in the middle of this, God had already created Jerusalem somewhere. Somewhere there was a creation that God had already made, but it wasn't aware at that time. We see in the second chapter of Genesis, there had not been rain, but the Bible indicates that there was some type of underground water system that would water the Garden of Eden. In chapter 2, the Bible tells us that uh, God made man... And he set him in the garden. There was no rain. And everything was considered to be, uh, in the scriptures, if you read it, it says a mist came forth and watered the vegetation that was there. And there was no rain because there was not a man to till the ground. So God created a man, formed him, and he set him in the midst of the Garden of Eden. When we read about the Garden of Eden, it's an interesting thing, and I've had people ask me, where do you think the Garden of Eden was? Of course, I think it's on the Gulf Coast, uh, incorrect. <laughs> Incorrectly. But the Bible does give us some indication. To some, it's, not, it's worthless information. Uh, because it talks about there were uh, uh, four river heads that began, or a, a river head that broke off into four areas, four heads, and then went forth from there. And the thing is, there are two of the rivers that, that are known today, and that's why people get confused about this. It talks about uh, the Hittichel River, which is known today as the Tigris, and there's also the Euphrates. There are two rivers that we don't know about today, but they're called the Pishon and the Gahan. Those two rivers, they say we can't locate where these would be. So many people will say there wasn't a Garden of Eden. It was a mistake. It didn't happen. However, there is a spring known to this day as called Gihon Springs. So in other words, there was actually probably those were the two underground water systems that watered the earth before the rain. Remember in the time of Noah's flood, the Bible says, and the sky gave forth the water, and the earth did as well. So there were underground springs that were there. So we see in the scriptures there, and in fact in prophecy, Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, he talks about the temple, and he said, and I saw water coming out of the threshold. At first it was ankle deep, then it went knee deep, and the farther out it got to the place where it was, it was so big to swim in. A water. And there is a water system that goes under Temple Mount, probably in reference to these two rivers that we don't know about. The Pishon River, the Bible tells us it was a place where there was gold, 
and bdellum and onyx and all types of precious minerals. Well, we know all the, world, uh, all the earth has minerals inside of it. No wonder this underground system had that type of thing because it was conveying what was underneath there. Are you with me? Am I mixing you up? Okay. So, the Bible tells us that God take, took the man that he had created and he set him in the midst of the Garden of Eden, or eastward in Eden. He took the formed man, the man that God took and out of the dust and formed him and fashioned in, into him and blew in, or breathed into him the breath of life. And then when the man was alone, he says, it's not good. And so he, he extracted a, a rib from him and he made a woman and presented him unto the man. And man said, this is a good thing right here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Amen. Now, the question is, is the Garden of Eden Jerusalem? Could Jerusalem be the Garden of Eden? All right, I want you to ponder upon that. So, we get to the third chapter of Genesis, when God has made the man and told him, all you, every tree that, and every seed or every uh, herb that's here, you can eat of it, except for one, you don't want to eat tr the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because if you eat it, in that day, you're going to die. Death is going to come upon you. So man has all this to eat upon. And the Bible tells us that there was a serpent that came and spoke to Eve, to his partner. And she, uh, he said, you know, it's okay for you to eat it. She says, no, God said we can't eat it or touch it. He says, what does God know? What does he know? He doesn't want you being as knowledgeable as he is. It's okay. And so with that, she took the temptation along with Adam, and they partake of the forbidden fruit. And as a result, they became aware of sin. They became aware of evil. They had fallen from the glory of God. There was a mist or a cloud of glory that surrounded them. And though they were naked, they didn't have shame. But all of a sudden, they became exposed and they heard the voice of God coming to visit them, and they gathered up fig leaves. Everybody say fig leaves. It's important. How many of you know they didn't run out looking for it? It must have been nearby, right? So they covered themselves with fig leaves, and God said, what's up? Look, did you eat of that? Uh. And so anyway, man says, well, that woman that you gave me, <laughs> you know, don't blame it on me. It's the, the one that you made. And she says, wasn't my fault, it's that serpent. And so we see that at this point, uh, there became a curse upon mankind at that time, the curse on everything. So here we have uh, God pronouncing this curse upon those involved in this. Number one, he said the land is going to be cursed because of what you've done. And at this point, all you had to do was tend to it, but now you're going to have to toil in it. Before, all you had to do was kind of take care of it, but this time you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have rocks, but you're going to have thorns and thistles. It's going to automatically grow up, grow up and sprout up. And then he said to the woman, because you've done this thing, now in childbearing you're going to have sorrow and great pain in the midst of it. But he looked at the serpent and he said, look, because you have done this, you're going to be cursed. And God said, what's going to happen is from here on out, you're going to uh, crawl on your belly. From the, you're going to eat the dust. 
And he says, and furthermore, all I can tell you is this, is you're going to uh, bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But he says, however, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Are you with me? So he announces these things and pronounces these things to that serpent, and uh, that the woman's seed, of course, we all understand that the seed doesn't come from a woman, it comes from a man. Are you with me? So it was a bit of a misunderstanding, you know, how does that happen? Well, we know how that happened. Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? So he says, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And so therefore, that begins the area of conflict that begins. The conflict starts happening. Adam and uh, Eve give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel worships the Lord. Cain just gives an offering. Abel gives a sacrifice, a complete sacrifice of a lamb, and Abel brings an offering of plants, vegetables, or whatever. And it wasn't pleasing to God because God said that that's not what he required. And he gave Abel the oppor- or Cain rather, the opportunity to do well, but he didn't. And because of that, uh, he was angered at Cain. And Cain got mad at Abel. And what happens? He kills him. So we see the conflict that's going on at that time. It's even within the home. Domestic violence had taken place at that time, and it hasn't ended. Amen? Evil is present at that moment. There's a conflict always between uh, the good and the evil, the conflict that we, we face. Wickedness was great, in the Bible tells us, in Genesis, the sixth chapter. It was so great that man was continually, everything, every part of his thoughts were continually evil. And so God... Uh, tells Noah to build an ark because he was going to destroy all the evil that was there. And so the wickedness was great, and the Bible also says that there were giants in the land at that time. They were the Nephilim. And so anyway, Noah builds a, a boat, and many believe, Bible scholars, and all uh, the rabbis will be- tell you that they believe that the giants of those days, and there were different ones, the Rephim, the Anakim, uh, and uh, can't think of the others. Anyway, there are several types of giants that were in the land at that time. And the scholars believe that it was from them was the seed of the serpent. Are you with me? Are you listening? Yes. Remember, God says, the, the woman's seed is going to crush the seed of your seed. And so they believe that the evil of the giants was the seed of serpent of the serpent that had manifested itself and was going through the land at that time. So Noah builds the ark and he's spared. Time goes on and they start filling the earth again. And there's a man by the name of Abraham. At that time he was known as Abram. And uh, God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and he says, I want you to go to a different place and I'm going to take you to a place and where I go, uh, I'll show you when you get there, but that's where I want you to dwell. And he begins to give him some promises there. And so Abraham takes off away from his people with the exception of Lot, who is his nephew, who follows with him. And they go along, and so they get to a place, and Abraham says, uh, okay, this is too small for both of us. I'll tell you what, you pick out the land that you want to go to, and then I'll take the other. I'll take what's left. 
And so Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom, toward iniquity that was there. He said, I'll take this because it's choice land. But every day his kids would come out, come out of the tent, and what were they faced with? Iniquity. They viewed it all the time. But Abraham was still faithful to God. So anyway, they, they, there ended up being a war there. Abraham hears about it at this time. They become powerful. He goes there with his resources, and they kill uh, the evil that's there. And so what happens is there's a guy that shows up out of nowhere called the priest uh, or king Melchizedek. And so he shows up, which Melchizedek means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. In the scripture, it says he's the king of Salem. So the word Salem is not really pronounced Salem, though we give it that. It's actually taken from the word Shalom. And it's not Jerusalem is the way we look at it. It's actually Yerushalayim, Shalom. And so anyway, he comes out of nowhere, and he comes up to Abraham, and he's, he's bearing uh, bread and a cup of wine. And he comes up to Abraham, and he says, look, we're going to celebrate this victory. We're going to have a communion together. You and I are going to break bread together. We're going to drink the cup together. And so Abraham looks at him at that point, and Abraham feels this thing. He's never been instructed to do this. He knows that you honor God by worship, but he takes a tenth of all that he has, that all he had gained, and he gives it to Melchizedek. In other words, he started paying tithes because he was believed he was doing it not only for what he had, but for his descendants that were yet to come that God promised him. So he commits that offering to him. So we have Yerushalem, Shalom, is uh, the, this place. Now it has a name. People start identifying as not just the place, but rather a name. Now the word uh, Yeru is an interesting word. It's made put together, but it means foundation. It also, uh, it means they're going to see. Are you with me? So in other words, the founding of this place is going to be something that they will see in the future, and you add shalom to it, it means complete and whole. Are you with me? So when you put it together, God is showing, uh, showing Abraham, look, you may not see it now, but this is the foundation. Maybe this is the place where God created everything from, the foundation upon it. And the nations are going to see it. Though there's been conflict of spiritual and physical conflict, one day, one day, we're going to see Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, brought down and made the way it was as it was from the beginning. Amen? So Abraham has this covenant with God, and God says he's going to have a, uh, a son. Now before that, God said, when you get out to the place that I'm taking you, you're going to have so many descendants. If you can count the stars and number the stars, you could be able to number your seed. If you could look at the sand, you'd be able to number the, the descendants that you're going to have. So Abraham was already used to looking up, and I believe he just didn't see the stars, but I believe he probably saw a generation and generations that were going to happen. And so God had given him this one son. He said, from one son, I'm going to make all this happen. And this was Isaac. And so God tells Abraham, he says, look, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and when you get there, 
I want you to offer up your son, your only son, your only son. And so anyway, the Bible tells us that he went out, he and his son and two other men, and they went to this place, and the Bible says in uh, Genesis, the 12th chapter, verse 4, he saw the place from afar off. A lot of people think about that as a distance, as in spatial distance, but the word that was used there uh, actually means, it's rankok, which means not only space, but time. So I believe in my heart that when Abraham went out there and he sees this place, but he sees it not just in the present, but he sees it down the road. Are you with me? He saw the generations that God told him to look at the stars. He saw the descendants as he told him to look upon the sea. He also saw his son, but when he looked in the distance, he saw something taking place, something that was going to be powerful, that would change everything in the distance of time. And he saw God giving his son. I believe that that's what gave him the power and the ability. Because when they're walking up the hill, Isaac looks to his dad and he says, Father, he says, I see the, I see the wood. See, there, we got fire. We have a knife. Where's the, where's the lamb? And Abraham, who's had this vision of 2,000 years later, he says, don't worry, son. I've seen what's going to happen. For God himself is going to provide a sacrifice. Are you with me? The Bible says in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, that that's why Abraham believed so much that even if he laid down his only son, God would raise him back up because he saw it happening. You might question and say, now where do you get that from? Well, from Jesus himself. Jesus in the 8th chapter of John says this, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. He saw it. I believe that when Abraham was walking up the hill, he saw what was going to take place. That at some point in time, the Son of God was going to be walking up the hill to take our place. Can you say amen? So there we go 500 years later. Moses leads Israel out of bondage. And he takes them to a place that was spoken about in Exodus, the 15th chapter. Verse 17, God says, I'm going to plant you. I'm going to plant you in the mountain of God's dwelling and sanctuary. 400 years after that, there's a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep on the backside. And Israel's being taunted by the giants, by the seed of the serpent. He's being taunted by all that army was. Goliath was out there and he said, choose you a man to come out here. And if, if I win, then you serve us. If he wins, then we'll serve you. And everyone was afraid. Saul was afraid. Everyone was afraid. And Samuel, who had come to Jesse's house because God told him, he says, I want you to go there and anoint the next king of Israel. And of course, they thought the other seven were the most qualified, the most likely, but it was the shepherd boy that nobody knew about or recognized that was going to be the deliverer. And David comes out. Saul puts the armor on him. And he says, I can't wear this. I'm not used to fighting like this. I'm going to take my sling and a stone because that's what I'm used to. That stuff don't work for me. It doesn't fit me. One size doesn't fit all. And so he took the sling and the stone and he went out there. And the Bible tells us he took five stones, 
Well, there are actually five giants that are known of in the Bible that are mentioned. I believe that not only did David take on one for Goliath, he says, I got four for any brothers he might have. Bring them on. We'll take them all on. We find that David's mighty men actually killed out all the giants that were after that point. So what happened was David slung his, his, his sling, through, launched the stone, hit him in the forehead, knocked him out. He didn't have a, sto- have a sword, but the king had said, I'll give, you, you bring the head of the giant. Whoever kills the giant can have my daughter. So he takes the, the sword from Goliath and cuts off the giant's head. And the Bible tells us that he buried the, the armor of, of, of uh, Goliath in his tent, but he drug his head to Jerusalem. He took his head to Jerusalem. So he doesn't just leave this thing sitting out. It's got to be buried. David had conquered the physical seed of the serpent. We're going somewhere, folks. Okay? Then there was a crowd. Last week, there was a crowd as Jesus walked into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that was celebrating him, waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the, of the Lord. But in a few days, the crowd had turned. You see, the religious leaders and those who would follow after them, they had incited a riot and a rebel, uh, rebellion that would go on. And this crowd turned from Hosanna's, probably not the same people. It was a, a different crowd. But he was brought before that crowd. And here they're calling out, crucify, crucify, give us Barabbas. This man, he must die. He's a blasphemer. So that was all a part of it. And then he would be made to bear a cross, to, to bear the cross to the hill. He would carry the wood to Calvary until he was unable to carry it. They placed Jesus on wood just like Isaac was placed upon the wood. Are you with me? Just like Isaac was laid upon the wood, Jesus was laid upon this wood. And we see that at that point, the Bible tells us that they took a crown of thorns and they twisted it together, making a crown. And they put it upon his head and they wrote above it, King of the Jews. And so we can again look at that story before when Abraham gets up at the top of the hill and he's ready to take his only son. The Lord speaks, he says, Abraham, Abraham, don't you touch your son. I see how much faith that you have. And there he saw a ram caught in the thickets. A ram with a crown of thorns. And that was the sacrifice. And here's the canvas of God that's being portrayed. It's the canvas that Abraham saw when Jesus said he saw my day. And he rejoiced. He said, thank God, we don't have to do this anymore. God himself provided the sacrifice for each and every one of us. A ram in the thickets, which was the thing that sprung, sprung up after the curse of sin, right? Thorns and thickets. And there he was, thorns and thickets, sin placed upon Jesus. He's the sacrifice that God provided for himself. And they led him to a place called Golgotha. The Bible tells us it's a place called Golgotha, Matthew 27, 33, it's known as the place of the skull. Now, I want you to look at this, if you would, please. There he is. 
I've been there. And the reason people think that this is called the place of the skull, which it could be, it does have a resemblance. But you see the face there? See the eyes that are there? And it looks like a skull. And that's very well could possibly be true. But the interesting thing is, it's not just the place of the skull by the way it looks. The rabbis believe that it's the place of the skull because it's where David brought the head of the enemy and buried it. And there, in time, Jesus is placed above that, hung above the lamb with blood pouring out of his hands, his feet, his side, his head, off of his body, and it's dripping down on top of the place where the seed of the serpent was buried. Redemption. At that point, at that place, God was announcing, he says, not only are we going to have victory over the physical enemy, we're going to have a victory over the spiritual enemy, over the seed of Satan himself. Because remember, the Bible says that they, his heel would be bruised. When they crucified Jesus, they would actually turn him this way to drive the nail through this, and they'd be kind of be turned this way. And the blood is pouring off out of there, but it's dropping on the head of the serpent. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. You're, y'all are missing me. I, I, you didn't even hear what I said, did you? You did not even hear me. <laughs> Come on, think about that. God knew in the vast expanse of time that this was the place, this is where it was marked, it's where man lost paradise, where God bought paradise back again. Hallelujah. Oh, and because of that, they took him down, and I got to go, and guys, if you can come up here this morning and be prepared to sing, and we're going to close. I know it's not 3 o'clock yet, but I'm going (laughs) to... But he's been crucified, and everybody thought he's dead. That's it. A couple of ladies, Mary, they, they prepared ointment, and they want to get to the place of the tomb. They know that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, anointed before he was in there. And I don't know why they didn't think about this before they went there, but they didn't think about the stone. And on the way there, they said, well, who's going to roll away the stone for us? And they get there with the ointment to anoint the body of Jesus. And all of a sudden, they look up, and there's a stone that has been rolled away. And I love it, because there's an angel sitting on top of the stone. If that's not a mic drop, I don't know what is. Amen? Not only does he roll it away, he's like, "Mm mm-hmm, got the duck face going on. That's what I'm talking about. And they're thinking, what in the world? What's going on? And they look inside. You see, that stone, Jesus didn't need to have the stone moved for him to get out. Are you with me? I mean, he got out of the burial clothes without even disrupting them. He just kind of went out. He walks through walls after that. But the fact is, he didn't need the stone for him to get out. He needed the stone to let us look in, to bear witness. He said, come on. (laughs) Death couldn't hold me. It doesn't matter what they do. They can't kill me. In fact, they didn't kill me. I chose to lay my life down. Thank you, Jesus. And the angel says, come on, go tell the disciples. Tell Peter, even though he denied him, tell him to come here, that the Lord 
is risen. Peter runs back there, he and John, they get to the place and they look inside, they see the, 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 the uh, burial cloths just laying there as though somebody had just evaporated out of them. They see the napkin that's been folded there and they're looking in and they see nothing. Then they're, they're in the garden and they think that it's a gardener that's there and Jesus says, Mary, Mary, come on now. It's me, it's me, I'm alive. Now go tell them about this. And then he showed his scars to those who were in the, the place where they were hiding out. He shows the scars in his hands and in his feet. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe him unless he like stick my finger in his palms and put my hand in his side. Jesus says, hey, Thomas, check it out. He's still got the crown of scars, not the thorns, but it's a crown markings of his victory are you with me he showed him the scars and every one of them he said sin is defeated (laughs) death is defeated the grave defeated he says behold i'm the one who was dead and now i'm alive and look what i got i got the keys I got the keys, folks. We ought to be celebrating over that. John, the revelator, sees this in the vast amount of time that's ahead. And I believe it's not too far in our future. But he sees that one who was the son of God, who was a picture, uh, uh, was a type of what took place from the very beginning, the one whose word created everything, the one that founded the earth upon which he created all things, the word who was in the beginning, is now standing in Revelation. And there he is, sitting on a cloud, along uh, with a gold crown, the victor's crown on his head, and a sickle in his hand. Are you with me? He defeated it all. He defeated it all. That's what you and I have to celebrate. So today, if I've done anything, all I want to do is just to show you what went into putting that stone there. And what went into it getting moved. I pray that what I've given you today gives you the ability to look inside and see an empty tomb. That no matter what you're struggling with today, God has already wrought the victory for you. He's won the victory for you. And you don't have to deal with it anymore. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and last who was and is and is to come. Hallelujah. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Glory to your name. Glory to your name. Before I have them do this song, I want you to know this is what he left them with. And it's what we want to leave you with today. But before we do that, I want you to bow your heads for one moment. If you're here today and you've not personally witnessed the Lord Jesus. You haven't had that encounter. I'm talking about you may have known the story, but he wants to come to you today just like he came to the disciples. He wants to appear to you today just like he did the 500 before he ascended. And he wants you to accept him as the Lord, as the sacrifice for your sins, as the sacrifice for your victory, who paid the price to break any chain, any fetter, any power, discouragement, any spirit, no matter what it is, 
What David and his men did in the natural, Jesus did in the spirit. He crushed the head of the serpent for you. If you're here today and you say, would you pray for me? I need prayer today. I want to accept him as my savior. Is there anybody here today you've not done that before? I pray that you all have, but if you haven't, now's your moment. Now is your moment. Father, if there's anybody even watching online today, I know that there are people watching from various places, but no matter where they are, the distance is not the fact, Father. We found that out with Abraham. (laughs) And so, God, we know that today that you're speaking to hearts and lives of those who might see it now or those who might see it in the future. May they recognize their need of you and accept the challenge that you give to us today. Accept you as Jesus, as personal Lord and Savior of their life, washing them from their sins, cleansing them, forgiving them. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus gives this commission to Mary and the disciples, and then he still says that today. Hallelujah. We took a journey to Jerusalem, but the journey's not ended yet. Amen? It's what we do from this point on. Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you fill our hearts with joy and love and peace and hope. Everything that shalom means, Father. Lord, Yeru shalom over our life. I speak wholeness and completeness to be restored in every heart and every life. And Father, may we go from this place with the same commission that the apostles did, that the women did. And may we begin to tell others who are broken, hurting, uh, uh, just in their life, they don't know what to do, they're at their wits end. But God, we have the message of hope. I pray that we'll not keep our mouths shut, that we'll let the stone roll away from our mouths and allow to come out the light of Jesus Christ in the hearts and lives, setting the captives free, doing the work that you came here to do through your church. We celebrate that today. Father, go with us now wherever we're at. If we celebrate within our homes with family, if we're by ourselves, if we go to a restaurant, wherever you take us, I pray that, God, we would be the light of, the wor- light of Jesus to a darkened world and let the light overcome darkness. Thank you, God, for victory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that one day we'll have a victor's crown, but we're going to throw them at your feet. The one who wears the gold crown of complete victory. Thank you, Jesus. And everyone say, amen. Amen. Come on, give him a praise this morning with all you got. (laughs) Hallelujah. Praise God.